This morning, though, we are in 1 John. Hopefully your Bible naturally opens to it. I know my Bible naturally opens to 1 John at this point. So I don't know about three sessions if your Bible will as well. Maybe your phone does. But um, I'm, I'll pray for us to, to start our time together. I want to make a, a quick note about the structure of 1 John just to give us some clarity going forward. And then um, we'll dive into the material this morning. But before we start, let's open in prayer, ask the Lord to help us, to give us insight into His Word this morning. So pray with me. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You've inspired it and that You've given that to us to read, and that we can learn, we can benefit from it, that it is good for us to do so. Would You, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to Your Word this morning, that it would speak to us, and Lord, use myself to, to clearly portray your words to these people here. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me make a quick note about the structure of 1 John. If you haven't been with us, um, we are obviously studying 1 John. <clears throat> and uh, if you have been studying with us, you know that, that John kind of goes back and forth a lot in his writing. And I was trying to think of a way to describe this to you, and the only way I could think of it was another food illustration. So if you were here last week, I talked about a steak dinner. And that's the only thing that honestly could come to my mind again. So we're going to go with a steak dinner again, all right? So pardon me for that illustration. Think of, there, there are two types of people in this world. One, those who have their food and they separate their food based on what type it is, okay? So if they have a, a chicken dinner or a steak dinner or something, they have their meat over here, their potatoes over here, their broccoli over here, their bread over here, and it's all separate, okay? Amen? Amen. All right. How... how don't let the food touch. How many of you would consider yourselves to be in that first category? I will not let my food touch. Okay. Okay. All right. Then there's the other category of people, and they're, I call them the crockpot people. Okay? Now, when you take a crockpot meal, you essentially take a lot of wonderful, glorious things, throw them together in one pot, and you get awesomeness. Okay? That's not even a word, but you get some amazing food. And that's the second type of people. All right? Now, pardon the really dumb illustration, but think of it, think of, um, an author like Paul, all right? Paul would be considered in the first category. He, he writes in such a way that everything is laid out in a very rhythmic order, all right? Now, now John, on the other hand, John is John's a good Baptist, not in the theological sense of a Baptist, but have you ever been to a Baptist potluck? Yeah, there's a lot of crockpots. I'm surprised they don't blow a fuse with all the crockpots they have plugged into one, to one system. Um, but John likes to, it's like a pot roast, and, and he, he dips his fork into the pot roast and pulls out meat. And you're eating meat for a while, but all of a sudden you stick your fork into that, into that crock pot and you pull out a carrot, all right? And that's kind of like what, how John writes. You're on one idea for a while, and then all of a sudden, oh, there's a carrot, all right? And, and so just have that in your mind as we go forward, especially today. We'll, we'll see a few carrots in, um, in, John's, uh, in, in 1 John chapter 3 this morning. So just want to throw that out. You have an idea of what the structure of 1 John is like. Moving on, let's get into material and get off of food. Let me start off with a story for you this morning. In 1955, a young mother made a decision to put her son up for adoption. And during this time, this was pre-Roe v. Wade, the option for adoption was a lot more prevalent in our nation. And for many couples, this was a typical course of action. Now, the circumstances of the situation were complex, and the mother, whose name was Joanne, was not in a place where she could raise the child effectively. So she worked closely with an ado adoption agency in the San Francisco area, and they were working on finding a home for her child. The young baby was originally set up to be adopted by a couple, but fairly soon into the process, the couple learned the child was a boy and decided that they wanted a girl instead. Oh well. 
They backed out of the situation, leaving the child, who we'll call Steve for this story, with the adoption agency. But it wasn't long before another couple came, came around and was interested in adoption. Paul and Clara had been trying for some time to become pregnant, but for years had struggled with infertility issues, prompting them to now consider adoption. They were put on a list to begin the process and of adopting this young baby. When they learned more details about the adoption, Paul and Clara became ecstatic over the opportunity to adopt, and things began to move quicker and quicker and quicker. And the long process of adoption was sped up, and before long, the couple found themselves taking home the baby boy Steve to be their very own. And what a wonderful day this was. The couple gave Steve opportunities that he most likely would have never gotten, and they raised him as their very own. Now, when Steve was adopted by his new parents, his identity had changed more or less. He received a new name, he received a new family, a new home, a new purpose in life, and new opportunities in life, and, and many other things as well. Yes, Steve was the same person, but everything around him changed, thus making him more or less a completely new person. So his circumstances changed, he was still the same person, but everything around him changed his identity changed. In, in 1 John chapter 3, we see John discuss identification. He begins chapter 3 telling the believers where their identity is and how they are now called. I want to make two, two important points this morning. Let me just throw those out there initially so we have an idea where we're going. Number one, I want to talk about the source and the meaning of our identification. This is found in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3 the source and the meaning of our identification. So we're going to start there, work our way through, and then um, and kind of flesh this idea out of what our source and meaning of our identification is. First of all, we are children of God. If you are reading through verse 1 of chapter 3, read, read it with me, okay? Verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Let, let's stop there. We see a very clear identification here. Believers are now called the children of God. And this is clearly seen in verse 1. Now, from this passage, what do we know about this title? What can we determine from, from this one title here? Well, we know a couple things. Number one, this title, children of God, it is from the Father. Number two, it's the result of an action, the result of Christ's work on our behalf. Number three, it's something that we are called. We are called children of God. Number four, it's a new identification, a new identity. And in fact, we see a parallel to this in, in John's gospel. So go back, you know, a, a few decades when John wrote his gospel. And chap John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, which is the authority or the jurisdiction, to become children of God. So we see a parallel. We see this idea of a child of God used again in John's gospel. Now, we are becoming like God, the God incarnate, Christ. Look down in verse 2 with me. We'll get back to the, 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 the latter half of verse 1 in a second, but let's go jump to, down to verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. This verse is saying we, we are essentially becoming like God. Now, for the Old Testament, Old Testament believers, this would have been a really hard concept to understand, because how could you be like God, Yahweh, the great I Am? How is one ever supposed to obtain and reach 
th this sort of identity? How are you supposed to be like God? All right. But in the New Testament, we flip that page into Matthew, and we start reading about, about Christ, who is the God incarnate, who is the God that is understandable, the God that is knowable. We are now supposed to be like this God. It gives us an, an, a, an image that we can, we can clearly emulate. We can strive to be like this human form of God. And so as believers, we are becoming more like Christ. But this is a progressive conformity to Christ. Look down in verse 3 with me. Verse 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We've discussed already in, in previous weeks that the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts. And as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, he brings us from, from where we were before Christ and transitions us and molds us, makes us more into the image of Christ. And it's a process. It's a progression now, John uses the word purify here. And the word purify means to, to make clean from, often in regard to sin. It's, it's, it's a progressive idea. Um, a few weeks ago, Nathan and I were working on the irrigation. Well, Nathan was working on it. I was observing. Uh, we were working on the irrigation system at the Parsonage. And there's a line from the secondary water source that runs into the irrigation for the house to, to water everything. And there's a little filter that we put on. Remember that? A little filter that you put on to the irrigation line to stop any sort of debris that would have otherwise passed into the irrigation system and clogged up the sprinkler head, all right? We put that filter on and put it on correctly, I will say, and that filter filters out any small debris, all right? That's a purification process. It, it's purifying what was there and it's making it something different, making it better. That's kind of the idea here, that by the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, we are purified conformed more into the image of Christ here. It's a progressive process. Um, so we are, we are to be purifying ourselves into the image of Christ. Christ is pure. Therefore, as image bearers of Christ, we are to be pure. And we're to do this by the grace of God to look more like our ideal, Jesus Christ. Now, this is all tied back to what John has already said in verse 1 about our identity. He's like, because you are children of God, therefore, you are going to look like this. You will start doing these things. It's a natural response to being a child of God. So we're up to verse 3 now. And in verses 4 through 10, let me, let me just say as we jump into these, um, this may cause a bit of consternation for some believers, a bit of conflict at times um, when we start reading these passages just at face value. And so I'm going to help us by giving us a few quick facts about verses 4 through 10, and then we'll work through it progressively and try to understand what John is saying here. So starting in verse 4, here's a few quick facts. Number one, found in verse 4, consistent and unrepentant sin is considered lawlessness. All right, so we're moving down. Verse 4 says, everyone who, practices, who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The idea of practice there is a consistent repetition. Um, it, it's an involvement in some sort of activity. That's what practice would, would mean. And if you are consistently involved in sinning in an unrepentant way, then that is considered lawlessness, according to John here. We'll look down at verse 5. There's another fact that I think is really good to acknowledge, and that is this, that Christ died to take our sin. Christ died to remove that sin from our account. Read in verse 5, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him, in Christ, there is no sin. And so here, there are, those are two quick facts that help us um, they give us a foundation for looking at the next few verses here, okay? But there are a couple potential questions that would come up in this section. Questions like, what constitutes lawlessness? 
How do I know I am not living in lawlessness as a believer? I have sin in my life. Does that mean I am a child of the devil, as we see later in verse 8? Well, let me answer some of those questions for us and give us a framework to understand this. As we look in verse 8, I'm going to jump down to verse 8. Consistent and unrepentant sin would tend to illustrate an affection for something that is not God. All right? If we read in verse 8, it's, John says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning, lawlessness, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? Was to destroy the works of the devil, to conquer that sin. And so we see that if you are living in consistent and unrepentant sin, perhaps, then it's an illustration that your affection is probably not in God. It's probably in something other than God, okay? Now, remember, remember, John is writing to believers here, all right? And so he's not necessarily calling them out and saying, you are a bunch of, a bunch of heathens, essentially, but it's more an, an evaluation. It's a test. He's like, look, look, at who you, look at who you are. Look at your actions. And what do your actions illustrate about yourself? But look back at verse 7 with me. He kind of presents the opposite idea. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he, Christ, is righteous. So we have two spectrums here. Verse 7, we have those who are practicing righteousness. And we have verse 8, those who are practicing lawlessness. And he's saying that this is an illustration. This is an external showing of an internal affection. What you, what you show on the outside is kind of an expression of what you are on the inside. And so believers, it's a test for us to, to, to evaluate, okay, where, where, where am I, all right? But there's a truth found in verse 9 and 10. I want to spend some time looking at this, and actually we're going to come back to that, the illustration of adoption very quickly. Verse 9 and 10 says this, No one born of man makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now by this, verse 10, this is evidence who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. As we read in verse 9, we, we see that being born of God, this idea of being born of God, means that you do not keep, practice, keep the practice of sinning. You have been given a power here, a power of being born into a radically different family. Now, a question that might come from that is this, does that mean that a child of God will never sin again? Think about that. Will a child of God ever sin? If you read that verse at face value, it almost seems as if, all right, I'm a child of God, therefore I will never sin. Think about that. What has John previously said? Think think back to like chapter one, okay? John John, John laid a truth down and the entire, the entirety of the book is predicated on that truth found in uh, chapter 1, verse 8 through 10, that believers, yeah, you will still sin, but what do we have? Verse 9, we have forgiveness offered through God because God is faithful and He is just. So we know that believers still will sin, but this is more, this, the idea that John is getting at is, is unrepentant and consistent sinning. That tends to illustrate an affection elsewhere. All right. But John, um, let me give a clarification here about adoption and being born again. And so I'm just going to jump right into this, okay? We've talked about adoption already. Adoption is a change in your circumstances. It's a change in your exterior um, surroundings. You're into a new family, just like Steve was at the beginning. But there's actually, and, and this is a good illustration of, of the gospel, 
But in fact, there's, there's a greater illustration, a greater image of the gospel that John brings out here, and that John has already brought out in his gospel, and that's this. It's the idea of being born again, all right? Think back to, to Nicodemus's interaction with Christ in, in John chapter 3, all right? Nicodemus comes to Christ, and he, he's asking Christ these questions about how do I become saved, and what, is, what does Jesus say? He says, you must be born again. He says that in verse 3, verse 4, and then down in verse 7 of John chapter 3. Being born again is a completely different concept, okay? When you, when, you are, when you were a baby, when you were born, and all of you in here were born at one point, some of you many years, some of you not as many years ago, when you were born, did you remember anything from before? It's not a trick question. It's kind of a dumb question, too. You were born, you didn't have any prior knowledge of anything, right? You're fresh. It's like a blank slate, all right? It's like a clean whiteboard. And you begin your life with no previous anything. And you begin your identity into your family. For me, I'm a Fletcher, and so I, I was born into the Fletcher family. I became a Fletcher, all right? For others of you in here, you became a, a baker, all right? Or, or a, a Parkinson or, or, or someone like that. You, you become identified with your last name, a part of that family. Now, how is that different from adoption? Adoption is you are brought into that family, but you hold a past. But when you are born again into, into God, you are born of God, you are literally born into the family of God. All right, You have a blank slate. It is fresh. You, your identity is completely in God now. You don't have anything carried over from, from previously. And so when John says here that, um, <clears throat> what does he say? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in you. Your identity is completely in God now, and so that results in certain actions. It means that you will not keep on sinning, all right? Believers, you may have sin in your life. The reality is that, that if you confess that, God is faithful to forgive, but um, a characteristic of unbelievers is this consistent unrepentant sin. And so verse 10, we evidence that we are children of God by living righteous and holy lives. We actively participate with the Holy Spirit in this transformation process in our lives. Now, John lays a very specific way in the end of verse 10 about how we can demonstrate that we are truly children of God. How we can truly demonstrate that we're children of God. And this is the second main point that I have for us today, that we are to love one another. Remember, he's writing to believers here. We are to love one another. Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was evil and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brethren, that the world hates you. And so here we see a commandment that John gives again. And this is very similar to the commandment that, that Jesus gave back in John chapter 13. Uh, and verse 33 and 34, which says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, it's an evidence that people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And now John gives us an example here with Cain of what, what we are not to look like. He says, don't look like Cain, who did not love his brother, who had evil, who had malicious intent, and he's comparing Cain and Abel here, Abel the righteous and Cain the, the, um, the corrupt, the evil. And he's saying Cain did not, Cain murdered his brother, he hated his brother because of righteous deeds. And then he goes into the, in discussing the world in verse 13, 
the world is going to hate you believers because you have righteousness inside of you from God. And the world will hate you because of that. Down in first, verse 14, as we keep moving, moving through the, this passage, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now, as we read verse 14, it, it might sound a little strange to us. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And that almost sounds a little bit legalistic, meaning if I love my brother enough, if I love my brothers enough, that means, hey, I'll be passed from death into life, all right? If we read at face value, that's, that's kind of our, the way our minds might go. But what is John actually saying here? Think of it like this. Think of loving, loving your brothers as a badge or, or a, a title, okay? In the Boy Scouts or in the military, you have um, pins or badges or medals or stripes on your sleeve that indicate who you are. All right? If you're a Boy Scout and you complete certain acts, you'll get certain pins that demonstrate what you've done. All right? If you're in the military, you have different medals, you have different uh, marks on your sleeve that indicate who you are, your rank, your, the position you are in the hierarchy. Okay? And those are an external reflection of who you are, your internal reality. So think of it like this. When John is saying that, that you, your love for the brothers, that is your external evidence of the internal reality inside of you, to, to know that you have passed from death to life, and because of that, you will now love your brothers. So again, the theme of evidence here. John has a theme of evidence all throughout his book. Now, what, is this, what does this produce in us? Well, actually, first, let, let me say this. There are a few characteristics of Christ laid out. And so now we are supposed to, remember, we're supposed to look like Christ, and that looks a certain way. And Christ did a few things, and John mentions those in verse 16 and 17. Verse 16, Christ did this, by this we know, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So we see the idea of, of sacrifice here. But then verse 17, what else did Christ do, all right? Um, it says in verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is a parallel to a passage in James. But think about what Christ did. Christ was one who saw the brother or sister in need, and Christ was, was gracious and merciful to that individual. We see that all throughout Christ's ministry. So here we see two specific examples of how believers ought to interact with the world around them, ought to interact with other believers. Down to verse 18. Uh, we've already discussed, remember that Latin phrase uh, a few weeks ago, acta non verba? Does anybody remember what that means? Actions, not words. Actions, not words. Acta non verba. It's an imperative phrase that we use. Verse 18 is, is communicating this as well. Little children, John addresses the believers very personally. He says, let us not love, don't just love in word or in talk, in your words, but in deed or in truth, in your actions. Actions, not words. Actions, not words, John is saying. So show that you are in Christ. Show that you love God by loving others. Let it be an expression, expression of your love for God. What does this do? Well, verse 19, this is an evidence of our internal identity in Christ. It is our looking like Him and doing what He does or what Christ did. And this produces a confidence in Christ, a confidence that we can see in verse 20 and 21. Verse 20, verse 20 says this, 
for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. And beloved, verse 21, if our heart does not condemn us, God is greater than our, sorry, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So the truth here about our internal reality produces a sense of confidence in our hearts. And it produces specifically a confidence that gives us boldness in prayer. Boldness in prayer. Um, we are to ask in prayer, ask in a, in a, a certain manner, a proper manner. James 4.3, we are to ask in faith. And later on in John, chap- 1 John chapter 5, John says, uh, John says this, uh, 5 verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask Him anything according to His will, He hears us. And so the internal reality gives us a confidence as we approach, approach God. Now John kind of concludes things in verse 23 and 24, and we've been rhythmic, rhythmically working down through these verses, but here John kind of wraps it all up in a nice bow, and he gives it to us. Verse 23 through 24, read with me. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given to us. So we see a couple of concluding thoughts here that John gives. Number one, believe in Christ. Believe in Christ. We see that in verse 23. Secondly, love one another. This is a discussion that John has had all throughout this chapter. But then number three, evidence that we are in Christ by the Spirit's work in our hearts and our outward demonstration of that work. We see that clearly in verse 24. So here we go. John gives us some concluding thoughts about chapter 3. Now, coming back to the story at the beginning, um, with the idea of Steve. Steve was adopted into Paul and Clara's family, right? Steve was given a new identity and new chances and new opportunities in life. Now, Steve worked with his dad, and, and, and Steve did many things with his father that fathers and sons might often do. They tinkered with cars, they built things, etc. This love for tinkering developed in Steve during his childhood. Because of his parents' encouragement, he developed a new love, a love that made him more and more curious about how to make others' lives better and more efficient. In fact, if you're holding an iPhone today, that is largely in part of the work of Steve, Steve Jobs the adopted child who, became, who, because of his parents, developed a love for technology and a constant itch to never stop tinkering with things. Now, I'm going to be clear. The lesson this morning is not about Steve Jobs, very clearly. No, it's, it's about God. It's about the wonderful truth that as believers, we are now children of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. Our new identity, we are children of God. While the adoption story, while, while that's powerful, and while that story gives us a picture into what the gospel is, believers know this, that there's an even greater reality. The reality is this, that you are born again. It's, it's, a, it's a different idea. You have a new identity in Christ, and by this, and because of this, you are now called a child of God. So let this reality in your heart show itself in your actions. Let it be an expression of who you are. What does that look like? Well, love your fellow brothers the same way Christ loved, love sacrificially, love with a giving and generous spirit dedicated to helping those in need, helping other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who need your help. And by doing so, by evidencing these things in your life, you are showing to believers and even you are showing to the world that you are truly a child of God. Again, this is an evidence of your faith. 
So let the external reality, let, let, let the external show that you, you, you demonstrate be a product of the internal reality in your life, your internal identity. Let it show forth. And you do that by loving others. You do that by living like Christ. Let's, um, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you use it in our lives. Um, Father, I, I pray that Pray that your word this morning would, would touch the, the hearts of uh, many in here. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work in lives. Uh, Father, may nothing I've said get in the way of your message. May, may your word be the thing that penetrates hearts. May, may that be the thing that changes lives. And Father, we'll give you the glory for what you are going to do in all of our hearts. Continue, continue, Father, to sanctify us by the power of your Holy Spirit to look more like Christ. Lord, we need your grace to do that. Would you, um, would you guide us by your Spirit and show us what it means to look like Christ? And may all of us this week, may we demonstrate our love for you by showing love to others. Father, we give you the praise and we'll give you the glory for all that you're going to do in our lives. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.